Alrighty, alrighty. We're continuing our exploration of Isaiah. Yes. Last time we went through the first 12 chapters, which is a really good discussion. And this time we're going to take in the next chunk of chapters 13 through 27. Yeah, I'm actually very pleased we cut it up in this uh, way. Because I feel like, like I said last time, Isaiah 1 through 12 could be the book of Isaiah. It's a nice little snippet. And now we're going to get, you know, another nice chunk that kind of bookends with not necessarily parts of the book that you would necessarily normally start and stop at, but for us, factual things that we can kind of call out, which I like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've seen some pastors like preach this chunk before if they're going really? like pretty fast level through Isaiah. So it's definitely, it's like a chunk for a reason. I think that's just because of the way it kind of like Isaiah does like like almost episodic sorts of prophecy. Yeah. And I think this one kind of is one of those episodes. I was looking at Wikipedia. Wikipedia didn't steer me in the right direction. <laughs> it cut it up into three and I was like, this looks good. Yeah, it looked like it made a lot of sense too. But here's the other thing about Wikipedia. Wikipedia, it is biased. Wikipedia will just call out the Bible and be like, this was edited or this was added later. Yeah, But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Wikipedia also does, it does an okay job of citing its sources for stuff, but not great. And it's never like in the text, so you have to like figure out what is biased and what is just fact on your own. Yeah, I'm sure there are like Wikipedia warriors out there that like check oh, yeah. check pages like daily just to make sure that it's all up yeah. to date in the way that they want it yeah. to be. Yeah. That's like yeah. their, their that's their personal mission in yeah. life. But yeah, that's the other thing too, though, is that I there are I feel like I I listened to our last episode and I was like Isaiah nine, Isaiah eleven, and that ended up being like the most classic. Any pastor is going to be like, let's read from the book of Isaiah and like go to those parts. So yeah. I'm just the idiot who's like, these parts are obviously. But that's, that's me here too. I'm like, oh, I like this section. This makes a lot of sense to me. It's like, this is literally the... But would they cut it into four sections? Sorry. Uh, I think basically they cut it into three sections like Wikipedia did, except we've just like chunked those sections into a couple okay. extra okay. sections just to make it more bite-sized because 13 through 39 or 45 or whatever, that's like a huge amount yes. of stuff to go through. So it they essentially got the, the timeline correct, which is what most people break it up with, which with like Assyria at the beginning, Babylon, which we're, we'll be entering into now, and then mm-hmm. Persia at the end. Um, but we just kind of broke up the Babylonian section a little bit because it's it's really long. So, yeah, which I mean, I guess you could say maybe that's a good place to talk on. Babylon is an important player in the Bible, and Isaiah spends a lot of time talking about it. Um, as you're going through this section, or as you're just thinking about that, are there things that you feel like are significant in that? Um, just to address about Babylon off the top. When is Babylon called out in the Bible? I feel like Babylon's called out in the Bible a couple other times. It's a pretty popular name for places. Both both like used literally as like this place on the map is Babylon. But also I know like Paul or Peter uses Babylon uh, metaphorically. But like is this – which one is this? Is this him talking metaphorically about or is he like this place on the map, these, these leaders that live there like he's done previously? I think he's speaking literally. Because he spends so much time talking about other actual locations. Like, one of my favorite parts... I, 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 found, I found myself really surprised a lot, you know, in this, in this chunk with God's grace and love and mercy towards these adversaries of Israel. 
And um, not specifically talking about Babylon, but um, talking about Moab, you know, in around 15, um, you know, Moab, where was it? He says that um, he will drench them in his tears. Yeah. In 16.9, therefore, we, with, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibba. I drench you with my tears. And he's, he's crying over the destruction of Moab that he's, you know, going to cause. And then one other part that just like completely blew my mind um, that I've, I don't know that I've ever heard or caught before was 1925. And he's talking about Egypt and Assyria, which are just huge enemies. And he says, and this is what he calls, um, what he calls them. Uh, and I'll start for 24. This is 1924. In that day, Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord has blessed, saying, blessed is blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. He's like putting those all on the same level with each other, all worshiping him. So in the midst of all of this, like, end of the world, like, apocalyptic talk, he's still saying, like, these will be redeemed and be equals with Israel, which is insane. Well, yeah, that's something that jumped out at me, too, because when I was reading, I was like, blessed, blessed be Assyria, blessed be Egypt. I was like, when is that ever said in the Bible ever? You know, in in the prophecies, once again, and I'm reading a lot of the prophets lately just because they're all in the same section of my Bible app. But I was reading Amos, which is supposed to be very similar to this. I was reading others, Zechariah, and like they all kind of do the same thing, but there are these differences in each, and there's definitely differences in Isaiah. And this is something that is not only different in just prophecy, but I don't know ever where God blesses very explicitly these groups of people. He either uses them for his own doing or he like kicks their butts. <laughs> so Yeah, man. When I yeah, I saw that too. And when I saw in twenty five Egypt my people, I was like so confused by that. Yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? Egypt my people, which I think shows that we kind of fall into this same misunderstanding, I think, that um, the Israelites were, where he, I, I think maybe that's something that Isaiah is just trying to like undo in this passage by calling Egypt my people, Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. And I think calling Israel the inheritance and setting that aside from people is like a greater theology that I think Isaiah is kind of putting forward that um, yes, God is working like specifically, he's kind of inherited, so to speak, Israel as his champion people, but ultimately all, all of the earth are his people and he cares and loves for all of them, whether he works more specifically and intimately with them or not, like they're still his and he builds them up. Like he built Assyria, things like that. My translation says my special possession, yeah. which I like. My special, mm. <laughs> my my precious, no, <laughs> my precious. Yeah, I I just man, I was just again like you caught off guard because Egypt is just hardly ever seen in a good light in terms of what the Bible's referencing it. Not that Egyptians themselves are called out, but it's more like the nation of Egypt is even like sometimes you know alongside Babylon. So I just thought that was so cool and like such a and this 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 is recurrent throughout the whole Bible, but such an advocate for diversity of worshipers, you know, like having these three nations that are continuously at war with each other for thousands of years. And like the Bible's like, yeah, you're all going to worship God together. Yeah. I think too, something that I've developed 
and this is once again a dumb person reading the Bible could, could notice this, which I am. Something that I've developed is an idea of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are in the Bible. So when I read Moabites, I'm like, bad guys. Even when I read Ruth, now I'm like, oh, if the Moabites are bad guys and it colors my perspective. And I think it's good to understand, you know, which groups, the Philistines, I guess, like which groups were at times good guys and bad guys. Even in this letter, like I was hitting home like the metaphorical and literal difference between like how to use Babylon. He's used Egypt uh, badly in this very prophecy to be like, it's going to be just like when I redeemed Israel under the, the badness of Egypt. And now, chapters later, he's like, blessed be Egypt. Like you said, yeah. my people. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. Because he, he says that Egypt's basically going to get everything that they, you know, did to Israel. And then after that, yeah, he's like, yeah, but I mean, look what's going to come. It's so, it's so interesting. And I, you're right. You know, we have these predispositions of who these bad people are. And then if they're bad, like, then we're always going to associate them with bad things. But even you just talking about Ruth, like the Bible teaches us that it doesn't really matter where you come from. And even people reading this, you know, thousands of years later, we're still like, oh, if they're Moabites, they're, they're probably going to be bad. I would say, and something to piggyback off of just how we jump to this section, I would say a very high level note in how I saw the section was, and my Bible helped me with this just because it labeled it. So it's like a message about, and then fill in the blank. So a message about, you know, Babylon, uh, like Moab, all these places. And then in 23, and maybe it was also just because my app, I was listening to an audiobook and it, like the music got really intense at this part, but it's like destruction of the earth. And it's even like written in a different, different kind of way as the more like couplet poetry that I've been seeing in my translation. Um, so I also wanted to call it the obvious there. And like the kind of the jarring difference between a message about fill in the blank for nine chapters or whatever. And then the last three chapters. Uh, and then also, you know, what you just said, Chris, there's, there's a prophecy. There was a prophecy in, in this section that's like really, really important. It happens like a hundred plus years later. And I thought we weren't going to talk about that. I know like, once again, I listened to the last episode and we were like, oh, we're not going to comment that. We're not going to comment that. And like, we got to comment on that. Because it is written differently, it is like a different style, and it does talk about something. And also Wikipedia mentioned that as a part that was like, this part was added later, for sure. <laughs> so now I'm like extra conspiracy theorist. Yeah. So one, one thing, just like in my um, academia world, um, which Chris, maybe you've experienced this too, but like part of my education, which was really interesting, is I got a religion minor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I think I had one professor that would have said, like, they were a believer, um, but, like, none of the rest of them were. And um, there's one really interesting guy. He was, like, a Catholic priest, but he was, like, totally almost, like, atheist. It was so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but basically, they, like, if anything in the Bible is said to happen, like, this is going to happen and we know that it does, basically they automatically just default that it happened later yeah. because how would they know? So they're, Especially they're, when it's very specific, mm -hmm. like Jesus talking about. They're yeah. operating under uh, atheist assumption. So how else would you make this prediction and be correct unless it was just something you already knew because you were adding it? <laughs> so, well, and and I, I would, just like I am very hesitant to label myself a Christian, I also am very hesitant to label myself an atheist. So I would say it's more like a cynic's viewpoint where I'm like, oh, 
not only do I come at it with a cynic's viewpoint of like this was probably written later because it is such an accurate prediction, like Nostradamus being like these all these things will happen, and like one of them is like, oh yeah, this applies to this, but also the language is different, the writing style is different. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, I definitely studied this a bit. There, there's an entire you know field called textual criticism, and it's this idea of how can we look at the text as critically as possible to find meaning, not not to disprove scripture. I think a lot of people get scared because they feel like the digger you deep into scripture, the better chance you are going to have of like disproving scripture, which if you follow God, that should never be the case, but we, that's what people still do. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. Like what they're doing, what most professors do, even, you know, seminary professors is they go, okay, what is the most likely scenario? And if that scenario is true, does it, does it change anything um, that's a central tenet to Christianity? Like, if Isaiah was written later, is that going to disrupt my theology at all? And if it doesn't, then they'll go, okay, it was probably written later, but maybe it wasn't. And like, now I'm going to, you know, study what what the what differences could be made there, and um, what would be the most important part of it being true or not true, but uh, written before or after the events. But yeah, you're, you're totally right, Harry. I mean, the, the reasons people think Isaiah is written later, it's it's language. Um, Hebrew, you know, even when you learn biblical Hebrew, you the weird thing about Hebrew is you don't learn like, you learn Hebrew words that are over the course of a couple thousand years. Because if you think about English, English 2,000 years ago was spoken completely differently. So when you look at Isaiah and you go, oh, these words weren't really used before this period, the chances that, you know, this was written before that are pretty high. You go, okay, looking at textual criticism, it probably wasn't written that early. But on the other hand, it could be that the earliest manuscript we have just was retranslated into those new words. So that that's where you get that from. Yeah, and that's one thing that the Dead Sea Scrolls really, like, blew this whole conversation wide open because the textual criticism was so strong in, like, the this stuff was added later, this stuff was added later, this stuff was added later— but then we recovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Isaiah particularly is basically in its full form in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, scrolls, I, I like saw it yeah. with my eyes. I was there. I saw the whole thing, which is super cool. Like it's there's like this epic museum um, that's there, and you just like see this crazy old scroll. But like it, they they found this, and it had been untouched for thousands of years, obviously because it was just buried. Um, and they compared it to contemporary texts, and they're very, 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 very similar, like 99% similar. Bringing up the Dead Sea Scrolls is the way to blow that conversation wide open, because I, I appreciate you guys humoring me with this conversation, because I do have Wikipedia and, like, the Da Vinci Code in my mind, where I'm like, oh, it was, like, the year 1650, and they got together and made a blood pact and changed it. Um, but also, comment about the, De the Dead Sea Scrolls. Roma has been asking me questions lately, my daughter, about religion, just to like see what will get like uh, a rise out of me, and not like a rise, but like a really good reaction. And one is like, she's like, "What if you met Jesus?" And I'd be like, "Dude, if I met Jesus, like I'd have so many questions. That'd be awesome." And then one question that she asked me that like really got a reaction out of me was, "What if I found the first Bible?" <laughs> and I like thought about it, and I was like, "Dude, I was like, if you found the first Bible, everyone in the world would freak out." Like, like the per perfect first Dead Sea Scroll or whatever, like the very first one. But, yeah, it's important. Yeah. It's important to, important to have that original text. Yeah, Isaiah is, is a, such a weird one. 
And yeah, you're right, Hayden. I think we might have even touched on this before, but they've never found them separated. So, you know, if honestly, like, I don't know personally, I don't know that it would bother me either way, um, like theologically, but um, I also don't think that, I don't know, it doesn't like, it doesn't reduce its worth to me at all. But I also think like, we've talked about this before, but I, I think my God raised Jesus from the dead. So him being able to do a little bit of prophecy in Isaiah is like not a big deal to me. So it's entirely possible. <laughs> it doesn't bother me in that way. Yeah. It bothers me. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, you know? Yeah. yeah. Fine. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. Um, but you make a good point. Like, does it being written 150 years later or not, does that even change the bothering of like the main point for me, which is like, did Jesus rise from the dead? It's like, no. Like, does it even change my viewpoint of the whole book theologically? If or if not, I don't think so. So that's the... Yeah. Yeah, and that, that is that is a really interesting thing. And I... Yeah. I had a lot of different experiences with people that fall on all over those spectrums, but still believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, like that's, yeah. you know, that's that's ultimately I can degree, disagree about a lot of stuff theologically. But in the end, like if they believe the penultimate miracle happened and can happen then whether they think the other ones did or not is not a lack of faith so much as just like an opinion um yeah yeah i think it's also interesting because i mean if you know a lot of people would say this could happen i'm not sure if it did happen but i believe god could have done it Mm -hmm. i think like that really evens the playing field a lot and i I think what to bring it back to what we're talking about like (laughs) is the content in here only important because it it was prophecy or is it only important because of what the content actually was and i think the content is way more important than if it was prophecy like if it was prophetic before it happened yeah to put a bow on it my bar for like if it was a miracle or if it was not it's much higher where like you guys might be at like jonah getting swallowed by the whale and spat up after three days you're like oh like maybe that one could god have done that yeah but maybe that one didn't happen Whereas, like this one, I'm like this one. I this one still doesn't cross the bar. For me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. I think uh, uh, what you were saying, Chris, is good. That um, you know the content is is the important thing. And one one thing that stuck out to me, content wise, was Isaiah 14. Um, and, and I think it kind of it's verses 13 through 15 I, I think it kind of sets the stage for what this whole section is about um, because we, you know we're starting our section in 13 because it's addressing Babylon and and that's kind of this new time period of Assyria is being taken over by this new power of Babylon. Um, and so the Israelites are finding themselves under a new captivity under these people of Babylon. And as they continue to address it, actually starting in verse 12 um, of Isaiah 14, it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, sun of the morning. How you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, 
you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. And so going again to interpretations versus kind of the actual content, Mm -hmm. many people point to this as a reference to Lucifer and to Satan and say this is God addressing Satan. And yeah, it could be. I I totally think that it could be. That that definitely could be the uh, uh, a correct interpretation. Um but in the context we we know that he's directly addressing Babylon. So going back to what we were talking about with the kind of the Babylonian imagery, again, it, there there is this idea whether it's talking about Satan, Lucifer, this specific spiritual being that, you know, we see tempt Jesus later on, that tempt Adam and Eve in the beginning, whether it's talking about that specifically or not, it's definitely tying Babylon into this more cosmological perspective of like the leader of Babylon, whether it's, you know, being, being possessed by Satan or being controlled by Satan or whether he's just a a man who is incredibly arrogant is in his mind attempting to become higher than God and to elevate himself above the place of God. And it is for that reason that the opposite will actually happen. Like as high, high as he's trying to ascend, that's how low, low that that God is going to bring him down. And I think content-wise, if we're talking about like a major theme between um, 13 through 27, which is our passage, like that's kind of the idea. Like in whatever way, he'll like address all these nations and he starts with Babylon. In whatever way you are like prideful about yourself and about your country, that is the way that I will undo you. So I, I think that's like kind of a major theme that I took away content-wise here. Now, I just want to jump into the rabbit hole of why do people think that that is referencing Satan? Because I'm like, I guess falling from heaven. But like, I did not see that. I was totally, I was just, I thought I was just still talking about the king of Babylon there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a, I, I, this has been a long time since I've heard this. So this isn't something I just looked up, but I think it comes from the Latin um, interpretation which it has something to do with um, the day star is like a source of light. So the Latin might be close to Lucifer because um, Lucifer literally means um, the son of light or something. I forget, but it, it's, it's a word translation that, you know, was very close to Lucifer and might even be like that same word. But I know that again, it's been a while, but I know that this is not a proper noun. It's not a name. So that's why now we see like day star, son of dawn, um, they're not proper. It's not a proper name, so there's room for interpretation. But yeah, I, I think it's I think it's an issue with the Latin. Yeah, and with that coming out of the King James, it is translated Lucifer what? In, in the King James. Yeah. So that's why it's such a prominent interpretation is because that is the way that the King James interpreted it. So for me, I, I think again, it definitely could be referencing that in a way or or kind of doing the like big mountain little mountain thing like we've talked about where he's talking about babylon on the small scale but since it's such a common like spiritual problem is like a prideful thing it would make sense that that would be like the the thing that satan has brought into the world like we see that in even in the beginning that that's basically what satan tempts Adam and Eve with is like, hey, ascend to the heavens, be like God. So the fact that Babylon is saying the exact same thing in in Isaiah's mind could be like, hey, you're falling for the same thing that Satan tempted 
you know, Adam and Eve with, which is this pride to ascend above the heavens. So for it to be him specifically to say, well, that's his thing because that's what he wants. He wants to ascend to the highest heaven. I don't, I don't think it's a huge, um, you know, a huge interpretive leap to get straight to Satan. But I do think that the interpretation that the King James gave with just naming it Lucifer actually does detract from the content for me, you know? I'd say, and maybe it's just because Chris said it last episode, but this has given me some Tower of Babel vibes. When I hear ascension and ascend to heaven and humans thinking that that's where they belong, that's what hits me. And, and as we're talking about Babylon, yeah, one of the Babylons. I think it's, I, yeah, Hayden's totally right. It, it could be, I, I think it's, it's, it's a complication that arose from translation and um, it could be him, but it's definitely not his name in translation. So yeah, I, I, I would probably say, uh, you know, (laughs) you can pray about it, but if you didn't have, if you had never heard the Lucifer translation before, um, would you assume it's that I, I just wouldn't if I had never heard that before, but like Harry said, like he had never heard that before. Yeah. Yes, no, there's, and that's, that's what I'm saying. There's so many things that jump out at me because I'm trying to think this might be like the second or the third time I've ever read through the book of Isaiah. And that's like, I'm using that term letter, like liberally. I, I, you know, this is probably my first very critical read through. So but, but my, my other question was going to be, I'm not looking at it. Isaiah, you know, through 23, is there a rhyme or reason to like the places he's calling out? I know once again we're like chunking this in like time frames, but like as he's going through like Egypt and Ethiopia and Babylon and Tyre and all these places I'm seeing, are those grouped together in some specific area? Are they buddies or something? Yeah, I I mean, I think the main thing, at least that makes sense to me, is geography. Like they're all closely around Israel. They're kind of neighbors to Israel. They're in that, um, you know, Middle Eastern, Upper African kind of area of the world. Uh, So that I think that's why. And so they would have been like the dominant forces the the major players of the world and and like at the time at least for the israelites that was the whole world you know like that's what i was gonna say it's the known world right for them you know there were there people living in north america at the time maybe i don't know but yeah but that didn't matter at the time so like what they were addressing were these people that were around them essentially all the major players of the known world you know, today it, it's not as geographical, but if if Isaiah were to write today, he'd probably be talking to the United States, to China, to Russia, right. you know. Be, world, yeah, because yeah. they're the superpowers of the world. That's how I at least understand why these are being called out. Um, what do you think on that, Chris? Yeah, I'd agree. Just major powers. Um, although I would say I bet there's a lot of study done into that and just knowing some Hebrew history would probably be really helpful, and I just don't know that. Yeah, and, and one thing that I, I thought was really cool, so kind of going back thematically and, and in that way, when you read each one, like I said, that they, they are specific, but ultimately, like it, it's specific in in like function and not so much in form. And so that that's one thing that I thought was really cool about Isaiah eighteen um, is it's 
to um, Ethiopia. to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. And the, the cool thing about it is he says, like, listen, Ethiopia, land of fluttering sails and that lies at the headwaters of the Nile, that send ambassadors in swift boats down the river. And so it, Isaiah has this picture of Ethiopia as, like, great sailors that are fast, you know, fast sailors. And then the, the thing that he then says is, like, so go – um, swift messengers and take a message to your tall and smooth-skinned people who are feared for their conquest and and take this message that I'm going to give to you, which is the message of your destruction. I, like, I just think going back to what we were saying with kind of like the pride of being raised up and then being raised to, or being lowered down low for Babylon, this is like, hey, this, this speedful sailing that is kind of your thing I'm actually going to deliver your destruction via your speedful sailing. So whatever you're prideful about, that's where your destruction comes. And I think that's, it just shows that how it continues through in a really cool way in Isaiah 18. Yeah, yeah. the message is the same, but he puts it in the right context for each of the people that he's talking to. Yeah, and then it's the same metaphors that he's using. I'm looking at 18 too. Still the pruning of the bad fruit from a branch and then ending with, you know, wild animals eating the fields like that's he's used that three or four or five times in this entire prophecy already and it's once again like you said function and form yeah yeah i (laughs) this is this is really not adding to the conversation at all but i can't find it there's one place where somebody's really upset about rice or raisin cakes and it just really jumped out to me you know like there's always like a thing that is taken away when a nation falls and we talked about like the cedars before for one of these, it's a raisin cake, and I, I don't know where it went. But I thought you were going to reference the part I was reading, which is like talking to Egypt or something. Like, and we'll leave you naked with your buttocks bare. <laughs> it's like, whoa, God, like you're getting real intense now. You're talking about dashing our children's heads to the ground, but like don't make us show our butts. Yeah, well, that is one thing that Isaiah is made to do in Isaiah 20. Um, the Lord told Isaiah, son of Amos, take off the burlap you've been wearing and remove your sandals. Isaiah did as he was told, and he walked around naked and barefoot. And you're like, okay, you walk around naked and barefoot for a little while as a metaphor. You know, it's it's a metaphor. It's a but, but then, <laughs> But then it says, um, then the Lord said, my servant Isaiah has been walking around naked and barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> for three years <laughs> and i'm like oh, that man. this is a sign is commitment <laughs> this is clearly a sign and times yeah. were different back then times were different back then naked dude walking through the streets maybe a little less strange than it trudging. is now <laughs> trudging through the streets yeah but still, you know yeah. prophets are all about theater so you know he was just really really well i was gonna say putting it on but just really taking it off <laughs> Um, is there is there anything else we want not to jump ahead too much? But is there anything else we want to talk about before we hop like from the first chunk into like twenty four, right? Like the message about this place, this place, this place. I, I was just gonna say, I think that just before we jump off the nakedness, I think it's actually important. Um, I think it's kind of a transition into humiliation, which is what he ends up doing to these places, um, and that you see that a lot with the burlap. It's about um, uncomfortable and repentance, and uh, you know, pain. It's really about pain. And when he takes that off, he's now living a life of humiliation. And then when Babylon falls, it's really, he humiliates them. I, I can't. I got to go there. Is the, now you just ruined every single time the Old Testament when they like rip their sashes or whatever. Now I'm just thinking they just rip them in the front middle. 
so they're exposed or whatever. <laughs> you can cut this part out, but like that's that's what I'm thinking. Like, oh, like I need to feel the shame, and they just like <laughs> right in front. Uh, yes, yeah, yes, it must be a sign, the sign of Isaiah. Yeah. Yes. There you I, go. I think it definitely could be. But I, I think, you know, yeah, uh, Chris, I keep on wanting to call you Isaac. I don't know why. I think it's because we're in Isaiah and that's your son's name. So yeah, I, just yeah, put, right. I just put them together. Um, but, uh, yeah, Chris, I think what you're saying, it is a good note that there's the the theater side of prophecy. And, and last time we talked about, um, you know, how Isaiah uses picture imagery and that evokes more of the the feeling you know when you when you hear the pictures and not just what is actually the content of that and i think it's the same way with prophecy um you know isaiah walking around for three years naked is a a strong image of what is to come and also like his faithfulness to do that and so i mean after three years of seeing this guy you'd be like you are a crazy person well at the very yeah. least people would be like what is he what's his thing yeah. it's like well let me tell you he i hear yes exactly <laughs> and it would stir up this conversation yes, and, yeah. and so i think they'd be like why is he walking around naked he's been doing that for three years and they and then isaiah would be like well let me tell you why yeah. you know um so yeah you think he like lived a normal life and had a job during this time <laughs> he was just like a super calm protest protesting nudist yeah. he had like a family of three he had a job he wore a tie but nothing else right <laughs> he was like a desk job but he was completely naked everyone was like oh yeah isaiah's just he's got a message from god and he really thinks we got to repent yeah he so like in, while yeah. he was on the clock for work he was just a total normal dude but as soon as it hit five o'clock in the afternoon he went into yes. naked protest trudging the got streets it. mode yes yeah yeah okay yeah Took off the tie. Took off the tie. Yeah, but I think, yeah, Harry, going into the next section, we yes. kind of get the, the theme of 13 through 23 and kind of into 24 is the you're raising yourself up in pride, whether it's Babylon, you're just you're sending, uh, attempting to ascend to the highest heavens, or Ethiopia, you think your salvation is in the swiftness of your ships. Like, none of that is anything. Like, the prideful will be brought low before um, the Lord. And a lot of the, again, we talked about this before, but he, he cites reasons over and over again, which I appreciate, you know, and it's, it's the, the pride is like the root thing, but then like the way it manifests is like in unjust treatment of people almost always. Um, but then he goes into um, 24 and it does get, cosmic for a little bit and then the cosmic nature of it is redeemed so let's talk about that section on these last few chapters yeah it makes sense that it gets cosmic too as we were just talking about he just called out kind of his known world and then to tie a bow on that section him saying you're all going down we are all going down the lord is bringing the destruction of the earth you know i guess say what you will about say what i will about how it's written when it was written but thematically it does quite fit in this little semi-section. Yeah. 24 is kind of a transition to where it's like, hey, and, but by the way, I'm calling out these specific people so that they do know specifically 
that they are a part of this. Like, no one escapes this. But also, if you're not being called out specifically, you are also not escaping this. And I think that's a a transition moment that then takes us into 25. And it's actually a really good thing that he does go that cosmically and includes everyone because then he gets into this sort of like cosmic redemption picture um, that when everyone's included then in the destruction and the humiliation, then by a logical way, like everyone's included in this redemption. So thoughts on 25 through 27, this kind of closing section. Yeah, I think even going back to 24, this little mini section nicely mirrors the thing that we've been talking about this whole time, which is the doom and gloom and then the salvation. And he talks about the destruction of the earth and then he immediately talks about judgment and salvation and then he does the awkward brings out his guitar thing and sings a song. <laughs> so, but like it, it is mirroring, which I think is very different from a lot of other um, prophecies that's mirroring that, that, you know, from bad to good. In 27, though, it gets, it gets a little... I was ranting about, for the listeners of Julie, I was ranting about Revelation for like 20 minutes before this conversation. Isaiah 27 gets a little Revelation, right? Where it's like, and now we've got a scene where the Lord is like slicing up the Leviathan with his mighty sword, and then it gets a little, it gets a little like poemy after his song. So I, I that that part jumped out to me to kind of close out this section. What do you guys think about before we go into that? What do, what do you guys think about twenty four five? Um, <clears throat> the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed his laws, violated his statutes, broken broken the everlasting covenant. What do you guys think about the everlasting covenant that apparently all humanity has broken? Well, the six, I was going to say, too, a curse consumes the earth. It just makes me think of the curse that God gave upon Adam, Eve, the snake, and the earth or whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when I initially think about that, my mind jumps to kind of the Romans 1 concept of the world that Paul has, that, like, Adam and Eve as, like, prototypical representations of humanity that's a big big kind of words but and and saying it more plainly adam and eve whether they were specific real people or not again i don't don't think it changes the fact that paul and other second temple and new testament people are always using them in a way to say like what adam represented is all of us like so God gave this this covenant, so to speak, to Adam that like, hey, I'm going to set you humans as the rulers of the land. You're going to be fruitful and multiply and you're going to have dominion on my behalf. You're going to be ambassadors or what's what's the one that um, Tim Mackey always says? Um, Stewards? Yeah. Manager or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he said, what does he call it? Deputies. You're going to be my deputies. deputies. Yeah. Um, on the earth, which is good, but um, you're my favorite deputy. deputy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but but the point is, like, Adam is this the understanding of humanity and God's initial intention for them is that they would take what is good about the world, what God has given them, and then steward it 
take care of it, subdue it in ways that are godly. And every human is beholden to that. Every human is called to that. That is what all humans are for. If that's what Adam was created for, that's what all humans are created for, is to rule and steward the earth in a way that's just. So that that's kind of then what Paul goes on to in Romans, and he talks about that. And one of the things that he says is like, hey, God's glory is on display for everyone. Like, it's clear to everyone that they are supposed to be answering to something, whether they know it's Jesus or not. But even if you don't know it's Jesus, you should know that your job is to take what the creator, whoever you think that is, has given to you and rule with it in a way that he would see as pleasing. So that's that's kind of what my mind goes to. Chris, what, what do you think about yeah. I um I actually didn't I didn't have a um an original thought before I read somebody else's thought about this. Um, so what what I what I saw and I think it it's definitely open to, to interpretation. But um, one of the commentators I saw thought this was referencing um, the covenant with uh, that God made over the earth that He wouldn't flood the earth again, and that He wouldn't destroy all life on earth. And that um, in that we broke the covenant, um, not valuing life, I guess, was our part of the covenant. I have to I'd have to look at where this is. It's Genesis nine, I think. But um, and that the, the fact that we didn't we broke the covenant. Now, God, in response to breaking the covenant would be the destruction of all living things on Earth again. Now, I'm like not saying I agree with this but um what's interesting is that it does you know fit really well into the apocalyptic tone um but god would still keep his covenant by not flooding the earth but that he would still destroy it right it he will burn it in this case is what yeah. um yeah it's and, and the reason they cited for this is that that's the only covenant in the bible that's explicitly to all humanity at once so i don't the promise was I'm, I'm, the promise was I'm not going to drown you guys. I promise. It's my everlasting covenant. We broke it, and he's like, okay, I promised you I wasn't going to flood you, but I will burn you. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's where the covenantal language comes in, and it, and it fits exactly with um, what I was talking about before because it, it's the same covenant mm-hmm. that um, he gives to the Adam and Eve is that, um, you know, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. It, it it starts in Genesis 9, and it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, Be fruitful, increase in number, and the fear of, the, of you will be on the animals and stuff like that. Everything that lives and moves will be for food for you. And, and so it's the same exact thing, except now with all this bloodshed that's been involved, that's part of the covenant. So I think that that goes to what you, Chris, you were saying is like, hey, because then in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God has God made man. So kind of, I think what you were saying is, is true where that, that's where the covenantal language picks up. And now it's heightened because we now know specifically that spilling the blood of a image bearing human is a big problem for God. Like he has very specific qualms with that. And, and that's what's being cited here, I think, um, is, is that exactly. And, and so if men are spilling the blood of humans on a rampant degree, what else is God left to do kind of thing? And, and just like leaving Noah. And I think the, the, 
remnant of the covenant is a phrase that's been used previously in Isaiah. Um, but in, what is this, 24, yeah. 13, you know, if the destruction of the earth unsettles you, there's always a remnant, remnant left. So like, it doesn't matter how many times we break this covenant, he, he, there's always a remnant left of that covenant. And that, and that could be metaphorical, literal, a group of people pointing to Jesus. Could be a lot of things, but like, I think that that's the hope at the end of that section. Yeah. Which is what, again, Noah types is that there will be a remnant. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the word remnant is even used to describe people. That's something Tim's talked about. We don't need to get on that, but that's a very, very important word. Yeah, for sure. So, so then we're going on into 25. This is the, the part that, you know, again, like you said, nine and 11 are like what the pastors are going to preach. This Um, is the one. This is, this is the time where it's the pastors are going to preach it. Um, you do such wonderful things. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful things. Yeah. yeah. So it definitely transitions to a time. So in the midst of all this, all this destruction, Isaiah is rejoicing because he sees it actually as cause for, for justice. Like he sees it as a cause to rejoice because like you said, um, you know, there is this outcry of innocent bloodshed that, is is grieving Isaiah deeply and so he sees this destruction as a good thing because it will make way for a remnant of people who are um who see tangibly that God is real and that they need to fear him and actually follow his commands and that they'll be left um to do so and then that the Lord not only will allow them to live, but like in verse 6 of 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, come on, choice pieces with marrow <laughs> and refined aged wine, double the aged wine. I was going to say, mine says well-aged wine, but also yeah. mine says, we'll spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world, New yeah. Living Translation. So along the same lines of like, calling out these borders, but then breaking them down at the very end. I love that. That, that message is so prevalent through the Bible, and I don't, I don't think it's called out enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and for me, um, I was hearing a pastor kind of preach on this, and I, I think where, where it does get specifically Jesus-y for me is the, the idea of like the, the wine and the banquet that he does give on the mountain to me just goes to the Passover, which goes to Jesus's interpretation of it, of the last supper saying like, that is the banquet that he provides for himself. Like there are multiple times where Jesus says like, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And people are concerned about that because it sounds like cannibalism, but then Jesus unpacks it in the last supper. It says, this is what I mean, the feast that you will have is of my body that's given for you and the forgiveness of the blood um, that is also given for you. And so I think when it comes to now us kind of interpreting this is how how is God in already in, in the already side of things given us this feast in Christ? It's it's in that that like we can drink the forgiveness that he has given us in his blood and we can eat the new life that he's given us in his body. And that's to me being foreshadowed here in twenty five. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that that connection didn't quite do it for me when you first said it. But then looking at how this feast is used, it leads to God swallowing up death forever. 
it's like, wow, that seemed, this seems like a climax. This really does seem mm-hmm. like a climax. So um, even, if, even if it's not, even if you're not going to look at it with your Jesus glasses, this, this seems to be, you know, the, the tippity top of the section, even from like one until now, um, with everything leading to the destruction of the earth and then the rebirth of it through this remnant and then praising and being so happy about God completely triumphing over death. You know, once again, didn't, didn't mention Jesus at all in that. But that's what, that, you know, that's what is jumping out to me here, climax. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the reasons you see it, you know, used so often by the early church is because I think this idea even existed before Jesus. And then when Jesus came, it was, you know, that this is, this is who we think this is talking about. Like, it, we, we understand this book, Isaiah, Jesus has quoted it and, you know, applied himself to it look at what this is saying will will happen and how it parallels to who Jesus is. And so, yeah, it, it it's hard to, you know, it, it's a good thing to take off your Jesus glasses, but it's also good to understand that, um, you know, the earliest followers of Jesus, that even ones that had existed, you know, before Jesus died and was resurrected and existed, you know, through that time, still used Isaiah and still read Isaiah in light of Jesus. You know, it's not like we were applying this, like, you know, sometimes we we read things in the Bible that we, that are not applicable to Jesus and people in history really haven't done that. But, you know, we want to, as pastors, sometimes we want to have an application to a sermon that doesn't have an application. So we throw Jesus in there, you know, but this is pretty clear to me, at least it seems like there's some heavy, uh, if you're a Christian, there's some heavy Jesus in there. Yeah. And, and I think the reason that it's, it's reasonable to interpret it in that way for me is because that we see it happen in actual places in scripture. So going to Isaiah 26, um, starting in verse 17, Paul gives his own interpretation of this um, later on again in Romans. I think it's like 9 or 10 or something like that. <clears throat> but as a woman with child... Um, as a woman with child about to give birth rides and cries out in her pain, so we were in your presence, O Lord. We were with child and we writhed with pain, but we gave birth to wind. We didn't bring salvation to the world. We have not given birth to the people of the world, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So I I think, again, Paul picks up this idea that um, the, the earth, the creation is groaning in this expectation of new life coming out of the deadness that we have brought into it as sinful humans. And the way that Paul interprets that is that Jesus is the one who does that when he dies with us, but then kind of like coming out of a womb or coming out of the tomb, bam, human yeah (laughs) that's that's on purpose coming coming out of the womb womb, coming out of the tomb is (laughs) new life yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so uh, i you know i think why for me you know why do why is it fine to interpret this stuff as with jesus in there is because we see it modeled for us in other places Um, i I like that something that's missing because I like the hyperlinks, right? Something that's missing is, is the forward-looking hyperlinks. So as I'm reading Isaiah, until you said that, I didn't realize that that part was something that Paul calls out 
in, in his letters, but but I do I've remembered seeing it in church. Like I've remembered that part being called out. Um, and it's one of those that if I was reading like Romans or Hebrews or whatever it was, I could click that and be like, oh, this is Isaiah. But those forward-looking hyperlinks are important to have in mind. I appreciate that. Um, and then you, the last thing that I want to say on 26 too, I, uh, the first verse is basically Isaiah being like, in that day, this song will be number one on the radio. And then he plays it. <laughs> I mean, I haven't heard a song with these lyrics yet, so. It might have been a jam. Yeah, that's true. We can start writing that, and then we'll take it to Judah, and we know that yes, it'll sell it'll, it'll there. hit number one in Judah. <laughs> and you'd be like, look, this was talking about me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah what do you guys think about the Lephiathan, the fleeing serpent? What? Yeah, The twisting this? serpent, the, the dragon that's in the sea. Does this come out of nowhere? I feel like this kind of comes out of nowhere. We were talking about judgment and salvation, and everything was good. Everyone was feasting together. In that day, what day are we talking about? The Lord will take his terrible swift sword, and I'm like, whoa. That just, that yeah. just joined me. So I think reading in what well, you're talking about, reading that in the context of what's just happened, I think we see this as a good thing. So why, why is, what is he slaying here? I, that's kind of my question to you guys. I, I have thoughts. But. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we do know for certain is that dragons are real based on this. Well, here's the actual thing. Okay, I'm going to rant about this. We're going to get into Revelation. We're going to get into Revelation because we're talking about Scripture interpreting Scripture. Mm-hmm. Revelation interprets the snake yes, in Genesis as explicitly a bunch of things, but also this dragon that's slain. And so this is a dragon, swiftly moving serpent, the coiling, writhing serpent. He will kill the dragon of the sea. I mean, I've... We're going to talk about scripture interpreting scripture. Is this the same dragon in Revelation? Is this the embodiment of evil shown as a serpent in the Garden of Eden? Eden. I'm like, like these are the things that as I'm reading the Bible, it's like, tell me the answer. And there, there is no answer, right? But that's like, is, is, are they all the same? Is it something different? I've seen Leviathan called out a bunch of times. Don't even know what that means. Yeah, so Revelation 20, verse 2, is specifically what you're talking about. But starting mm-hmm. in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Yes. <laughs> and bound him for a thousand years. So, yeah, I mean. There it is. For, my mind even said, like, and was the serpent in the garden or something like that. I don't know. I can't remember yeah. Yeah, so for Revelation, I mean, going to interpreting uh, Scripture, interpreting Scripture, I think you're right. Um, it's The language is so similar that it seems almost harder to say that that's not, that this passage specifically is not what um, John is interpreting later and specifically ties it to Satan, which again, I think is why it's not a bad thing necessarily to say that Lucifer is the one being talked about in those other passages. But I I think if you jump too quickly again to the cosmological mountain that you miss the smaller mountain and then you miss the application for yourself. But um, I I think that in this way, what, um, what Isaiah is saying here in 27 is, this is not just the the justice of evil men, but that God will bring the thing that is causing men to be evil, humans to be evil, that will also be undone, which is a better good news, but a good news that is bigger sided than we often think of. I mean, even now, like 
we are going through a time of war in Russia and Ukraine. And, and you're like, what, you know, what am I praying for? Like, generally, I'm praying for like the end of this war that like, you know, something would happen that would just end the war and that we wouldn't have to go through this again. But Isaiah sees an even bigger, better picture than that, which is like, well, what if the thing that caused this war was gone? That actually explains it a lot better for me, too, because as I was talking about a couple chapters previously, like, oh, this is the climax. Well, no, actually, this is the climax. Like, how do you one-up the destruction of the world and the rebirth of the world? It's like, well, like we were talking about earlier, it gets supernatural. You're like, well, you know what's actually the climax of this story is when God defeats evil. Um, or the Leviathan or the dragon or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I just read something that I... Again, I'm reading this. This isn't. This is definitely not 100 percent accurate. Is it on? Um, is it on Wikipedia? Because if it's not, for that, I can't. So I can't. I can't trust got, it. <laughs> it's not. But it's definitely not true. <laughs> it's not. Uh, so it, it's saying that there are three three serpents described here: the the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent, and the dragon that's in the sea. So it's not the same thing, and it's also saying those represent the three powers: Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. Yeah, and that that could be, um, you know, and I don't know necessarily where they're getting that interpretation. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what John in Revelation at least is seeing is that those might be the three major powers that all kind of represent themselves in these certain ways. But the power behind the power is the, this power of evil, the, the ultimate evil, spiritual evil one. Um, that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation and has his hand in all of it. Um, at least that's how I think that John is interpreting it um, in Revelation. I wish. I wish I knew. I, this, I, yeah. Don't get me right yeah, on Revelation I think again. You can definitely go into rabbit holes with these things. I do like, um, I mean, I, I would have to read more about this. This is, for anybody who wants to know, it's Ellicott's commentary. Um, but I, I like when it is, I don't know. I, I like when, I like when prophecy tends to be interlinked with whatever context it's in. And so I, I think mo- these, this definitely has more than one meaning, but I like it when it also has a like grounded meaning in the prophecy that he's already been talking about. Like that, that makes me like attach better to it. Cause I go, okay, we've already been talking about these three powers. That makes sense. But I don't know. I mean, there's reasons that he lists for each of them being the one they're described at. But I think it's it's interesting to think about, okay, like this scripture can have prophetic meaning for like the near future and prophetic meaning for the distant future. And obviously the distant future more accurately applies to us. And I think that's what John is going off of. But I've heard those interpretations for revelations too, you know, that... The, the dragon and all those things aren't are are embodiments of like you said you know evil but not necessarily not necessarily certain places it's apocalyptic literature is so hard <laughs> yeah yeah well and so maybe this is a good place to kind of end with a final discussion then you know if if this is something that was written by Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years ago I mean why before before we started recording, we were ranting about Revelation and whether it's uh, a good thing to be in the scriptures um, because it can be so easily misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. But what what about Isaiah? I mean, in this 13 through 27 section, 
what for you as you were reading it um less less like what you think isaiah was trying to do and more more so how it actually affected you um how did you come away from 13 through 27 it was the same message right and okay so this is like ned in the first reader right this is and i have the benefit of reading this with jesus in mind but also like with kind of the first read through glasses on I came away feeling positive, but I also, I, I, you know, like this was really terrible to admit. I like I, this, this section was not nearly as, um, obviously hyperlinked or deep or, um, like it, it wasn't as dense for me as like one through 12 was. And like, I don't think that's because it wasn't dense. I think that's cause like I missed a lot of stuff that was like calling out to other things. So like I, that would be my answer, like positive, but also like in, in a first read through, even with someone who's like trying to look for things, one through chapters one through 12, there were like the obvious things that I was like, Duh, like Jesus. And like a lot of the, a lot of the sections we call out today, like they're kind of even like revelation. The only reason I freaking knew that is because I was just reading revelation the other day. So, you know, this one was kind of hard for me to interpret, honestly. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I'm still pretty consistent with what I said in the beginning. I, I'm really surprised reading this at um, God's grace and redemption for every nation that isn't Israel. Um, that stuff really jumps out to me. Uh, just because it's not, it's not the narrative you hear or think about when you think of apocalypse. Um, but also, it, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's comforting knowing that um, in the destruction of all these terrible horrible places that were horrible to God's people. Um, he still has, uh, like we talked about a remnant left. Um, but also just, he, he has a, a plan of redemption for those people, which is obviously leads to Jesus, but it's great to see it, you know, consistent in the old Testament as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think one thing for me, it's kind of interesting. Our worship director has been, uh, she's a strong advocate for Ecclesiastes. She, um, really likes Ecclesiastes. And one of the reasons is because of the kind of repeated line, there's nothing new under the sun. And for her, that's like a really comforting thing because it, it shows her, you know, going back again to like the war today is, is like, I think we can get this, this idea that like everything is coming to an end or like, you know, whether you're on one side or another politically, like something happens in a political shift and you're like, what is our world coming to, you know? Um, and, and for her, it's like, no, there's nothing new under the sun. Like, even if we have great, great, great technology for them, that he's literally calling out the entire world for their pride and arrogance and saying that like the entire world, God is going to see his justice to and also offer his redemption to. Mm -hmm. And and so I think for me, that's one thing that I can take comfort in is like, it literally doesn't matter how big we think the problem is like, God has his eye on all of it and is bringing his justice to all of it. And will bring his redemption as well. Yeah, history makes it clear that history repeats itself. And this is no different, right? God will see the same thing play out over and over and over, and he'll save it every time. So is the message. Well, cool. Um, I think, yeah, next time it'll be like 28 through 39 or 44 or something like that. We'll get a specific number, but yeah, it's a long time. Sick. Good work, y'all. Awesome.
unrecord. <laughs>